If you would, please be seated and please open your Bibles once again and turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. As we get started this morning, as we look at these first 10 verses, uh, I want to direct your attention to the very last sentence in verse 10. Okay, the very last sentence in verse 10. Because it's like my good friend Justin Henniger always says. Uh, I don't know if he always says this. I heard him say it one time, so I'm just going to assume that he always says this. Uh, You can ask his wife and kids. But one time I heard Justin Henniger say this. You should begin with the end in mind. That's good. That is that is good advice. That man should write a book. He actually has. But... uh, Maybe several, I don't know. Uh, but you should, you should begin with the end in mind. That is good advice as we come to these opening ten verses of Revelation chapter 13. It is helpful to see up front where the text is driving. It's helpful to discern what is the big point that God is making here. It's helpful to understand why God gave this vision to John here. So what is the last sentence in verse 10? It is this. Here is a call, a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's a good word. Amen. That's that's a good word. Whatever comes before this leading up to that, this is the point that God is driving to here in these verses. This is a call a command to, an invitation to, a strong encouragement to what? For what? For the endurance and faith of the saints. If you are a saint, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you belong to Him, if you have been set apart unto Him to live for His honor and glory, this text is for you. Should not be afraid of Revelation chapter 13. You shouldn't be afraid of it. This passage is meant to inspire you, to inspire you to continue on in your faith, to continue on in trusting and believing God and His Word. And that really is a remarkable thing because this passage, if you've already maybe scanned it or read ahead, you know this passage talks about and describes Some really hard things. This passage talks about the work of Satan trying to gain and control power for himself. This passage describes the rising of a beast. A beast who rules the world in terrible ways. A beast who hates the people of God. Who who eagerly strives to persecute and kill the people of God. A beast who does in fact kill many believers, a beast who takes every opportunity to blaspheme and to curse and to mock God and his people. This beast is truly, he is anti-Christ. He is opposed to Christ. He is against Christ. He hates the Lord Jesus Christ. He is desperately trying, as we'll see this week and next week, he's trying to be a counterfeit Christ. He's trying to steal the glory and the power and the honor for himself that rightly belongs to Jesus. Now remember that over the last couple weeks, we've been in Revelation chapter 12, and we saw Pictures. We saw signs of, of Satan as a dragon. 
of God's people as a woman. And we saw the dragon just desperate to oppose and to destroy Christ. But since he couldn't do it, he couldn't destroy Christ. He could not uh, 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 thwart the plan of God and, and kill Christ in any final definite sense. Then we saw that Satan was desperate to attack and to kill God's people. And now here in chapter 13... We see the unfolding of that war. We see that war escalated. We see a description of Satan's final attempt to put his own king in power, to create a false Christ, to rule in the place of Jesus, to again to steal the glory and the kingdom that rightly belongs to Christ. We could summarize it, summarize it this way. Please note this on your outline. In many ways, chapter 12, okay, chapter 12 shows us Satan's long and often hidden from our eyes war against God and his people. But here in chapter 13, this reveals Satan's last and best attempt to rob Christ, to steal from Christ his glory by putting his own wicked, blasphemous, hideous ruler into a place of global prominence. Now, after hearing that, maybe you're like, well, this doesn't make sense with how we started because you told me that this this leads up to a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That doesn't sound like that. What, what, what you just described, that doesn't sound like that. Well, before you leave this morning, you will see how and why this is the case. You will see how and why God unfolding this and showing this to us, how this is a call for the faith and for the endurance of the saints to persevere. You will see how good it is that God has explained all of this to us. Now, before we jump to Revelation chapter 13, there is one, and it is slightly time consuming, but I, I promise you, I've, I've, I've done my homework and, 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 and I'm not just afraid of this passage and so I'm not just looking for a long introduction so we don't have to actually deal with the text. But before we get to Revelation 13, there is one mildly time-consuming thing that we need to do. Okay, We're going to look quickly at three other passages that are so relevant for this study this morning. They will help to, I promise, they will help to lay this wonderful foundation. So then as we look at them and then as we move in to Revelation 13, we will be so well served as we have thought through some of these things. So the three passages that we're going to look quickly at are 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And again, you're welcome to turn there. Those verses will be on the screen so you can track right along with me. But we'll be in 1 John 2. We'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then lastly, we'll be in Daniel 7 for just a moment. Now, why are these passages so important? Why are we taking the time to do this? Well, please note this on your outline. I didn't want you to miss this. These three passages, 1 John 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 7, they show the consistency and the harmony of God's word on this topic. And maybe most importantly, they all emphasize the victory of Christ, the victory of Christ, the victory of his people over the brevity of Satan's success. Okay, if, if, if we can even call it that, Satan's success it is so brief. It is so short-lived. In fact, even when it looks like he's winning, he's losing. Okay? It's, it's, it's absolutely uh, incredible. And this is so important for us to keep in mind. And this helps to explain 
how and why all of this truly is a call to the saints. A call to the saints for endurance and for faith. So, in 1 John chapter 2, what did John write? Before he received this revelation in the book of Revelation, what did John write about the coming and the influence of Antichrist? Well, it might surprise you to learn that John wrote that the spirit of Antichrist is already here. The the spirit and and the work of of Satan and, and of Antichrist, it's already here. There are already many little Antichrists who are working to oppose Christ. We read this in 1 John 2.18. He writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, therefore we know that it is the last hour. There are many who even now oppose Jesus. There are many who even now are, are, are doing, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they are doing the work of Satan, trying to steal attention and affection and love from Christ. Now, yes, there will be a final expression of Antichrist one day, but Satan is already doing his thing. He's already working out his deception through his agents. And many of his agents, many of his deceivers, claim to have been followers of Christ at one time. They claim to have been a part of God's people, which is why John writes what he writes next in verse 19. John writes, They went out from us, these little antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Meaning, they left they departed from the truth. They, they, they abandoned the gospel, John writes, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Sometimes the ones who sadly spread the most chaos, who cause the most confusion, are those who at one time claim to be a part of the church and, and the People of God, they claim to know Jesus, but John says they actually abandoned the truth. They actually abandoned Christ and they, and in doing this, they prove and they show that while they knew some facts about Jesus, they knew some details concerning him and his life and his, and his, and his ministry, they were never actually born again. They were not new creations in Christ. They had not received the gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why John writes what he writes next as he now speaks to true believers who have received the truth, who have received the gift of eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He writes next in verse 20, But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. John says, you're not like those who hear the truth and then walk away from it. He says, no, you know it. And you want to love it. And you want to continue to know it. And you don't want to abide in lies, but you are eager for the truth. And so, next, John writes... In order to help believers be wise and discerning, in verse 22, he writes, Who is the liar? But he who denies 
denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The liar, Antichrist, again, whether we're talking about the final expression of Antichrist or one of the many little Antichrists, fundamentally, he is a denier. He denies the reality that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the King. He tries to deny the reality of Jesus' life in the flesh, that He fulfilled righteousness, that He was the payment and penalty for sin on the cross, that He rose triumphant from the grave, that He ascended into heaven. And anyone who denies Christ, anyone who rejects the truth concerning Christ, John writes, also rejects the Father. He rejects the Father. Listen, you cannot honor the Father while denying and lying about and rejecting the very one that the Father sent. The Father loves His Son. He sent His Son to be the Savior. You do not honor the Father by lying about the Son. You honor the Father by embracing the Son, by loving Christ, by worshiping Him, by coming to Him. And so, then in conclusion, next, what John writes in verse 24, it sounds a lot like a call for faith, a call for endurance, of the saints. Verse 24, John writes, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has made to us eternal life. In conclusion, John says, Abide. Abide in Christ. Abide in the truth. Remain in the reality of what God has revealed to you. Be secure in the promise of God and in the gifts that God has given, in the gift of eternal life and in the gift of His Spirit. So that's First John. Now let's briefly consider Second Thessalonians 2. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes about the coming of Antichrist. He writes about the coming of a lawless one who will oppose Jesus. And we will see how Paul also turns this into a call for faith, a call for endurance. We read in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day. Okay, stop there for a moment. Well, what is that day? He's talking about the day of Christ's return. The day that Christ reveals and shows forth His glory and His kingship. He says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, you should underline this, who opposes. Okay, who opposes. That's a key characteristic of this coming Antichrist, this coming world leader. Again, whether we're talking about the final expression or many little Antichrists, what do they do? They oppose. They oppose God. They oppose Christ. They oppose what is good and right and godly. They are opposed to it. So Paul writes, these are those, this one is who opposes and he exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's dramatic. 
right? This, this opposer, he proclaims him, himself to be God. He actually takes his seat in, in the temple of God and he says, it's me. You've been waiting for me and I'm here. Bow down to me. Worship me. I'm who you've been waiting for. It's all about me. I'm the one you should seek. I'm the one you should worship. That's messed up. It is. That is so distorted and wicked and wrong. And yet, yet, if this is what Satan wants to do, if this is what Satan wants to do to install his false king, his false Messiah, his false Christ, what is stopping him? What is preventing him? What is restraining him? Look at what Paul writes next in verse 5. <clears throat> Paul writes, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. This is, this is remarkable. Paul, Paul is telling us here that, listen, even the appearance of this lawless one, it is under the sovereign control of God. It is under the sovereignty of God that God is currently in his way. However he so chooses to do so, he is restraining Satan from doing his worst. But at some point, God will remove this restraining influence and then this man of lawlessness, he will be revealed. But here's the good news. And I, I, and I hasten to get to this next verse because this is such good, glorious news. His rule and reign, it will not last long. Paul writes in verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That is decisive. That is a short-lived success, okay, for this man of lawlessness. Jesus will not long tolerate his wickedness and his idolatry. And so, that we better understand the nature and the origin of this coming ruler, look at what Paul writes next in verse 9. He writes, The coming of the lawless one is by... The activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception. Now, hang on to that thought next week. That's going to be supremely relevant. How is it that this man of lawlessness, this coming Antichrist, how does he pull off such a massive deception? Well, he wields power, false signs, wonders, wicked deception, deceiving those who are perishing, writes Paul, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. There's a sense in which it is so easy for the man of lawlessness to deceive so many. Why? Because he comes to a world that hates the truth. He comes to a world that is eager to believe lies. So when he shows up, with impressive signs and power and persuasive speech, 
people flock to him. He is, he is, he is eagerly received and he is readily praised. Why? The end of verse 10 explains it. He says, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The world didn't want the truth. So they were easy prey for this coming deceiver. Now, how will God respond to this? How does God ultimately respond to those who persistently hate truth? To those who purposefully run from Him and seek to plug their ears and to shun the light of, of the truth and the knowledge of Christ? How does God respond to people who respond in such a way? Verse 11, Paul writes, he says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Had pleasure in unrighteousness. In, in other words, God, He gives them what they want. You don't want, you don't want, you want lies. You want unrighteousness. You want to delight in these things. Have at it. Have at it and see where this road leads. See the devastation and the pain that it brings. And, and brothers and sisters, I, this is slightly off topic, but, but not really. This is one reason, I tell you, why it is so reckless and it is so foolish to ever say or to think, I'll follow Jesus tomorrow. I'll, I'll get serious about things like, life and truth and eternity and forgiveness and God. I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll think about it tomorrow. Someday I'll believe the gospel. Someday I'll get serious about these things. Someday. Really? You know for a fact that you will live to see someday? You know, you tell me that you are guaranteed another day, another week, another month, another hour. No, the message of the Bible is very different. The message of Christ, the message of the gospel is this in Hebrews 4. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts to the truth. The message of the gospel is you come to Christ today. You delight in Jesus today. You know Him in the power of His life and death and resurrection today. You come before Him today. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day to know joy and forgiveness in Him. And listen, if you are here and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know Revelation 13 and this Antichrist, whatever. Friend, let me tell you the long and short of it. We all... Every single one of us has a desperate sin problem. We are dead spiritually. We have offended a good and holy God, but He has made a way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, even at this moment, at this moment, you can find life and forgiveness and acceptance in Him if you will but come to Him and place your faith and your trust in Him and you can do it now. You can tune me out and you can call out to God to save you and to reconcile you based upon the work of Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to do that now. If you would like to talk with us, we would love to talk with you about these things. 
after the service about how you can know life and forgiveness in Christ. Because listen, this is the reality. This is the reality. History really is his story. Okay? History, history, all of history, it is his story. And God has told us, he has laid out for us how history will ultimately unfold, where everything is ultimately moving towards. And so, we've looked a little bit at 1 John. We've looked a little bit at 2 Thessalonians. Now we're just going to spend like two minutes in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel. Some five, listen, 500 years before Jesus was ever born, God showed Daniel a picture of what is to come. We see in Revelation 13, fulfillments and tie-ins to what God revealed to Daniel. Now, as Daniel saw the vision that God gave to him, he saw a vision of coming kingdoms and rulers. They were pictured as beasts and horns, which is just what we read here in Revelation 13. But God showed him one coming ruler, one little arrogant horn that would speak proud and lofty things, that would oppose God's people. We read this in Daniel 7, 8. Daniel writes, I considered the horns, the horns that God had shown him, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth, Speaking great things. Stop there for a moment. So here, Daniel, he sees this little horn rise to prominence. In fact, it is so prominent that even the other horns, the other rulers and kingdoms, they are plucked up before this little horn. And this little horn has eyes. It has human intelligence. It has a mouth that speaks boastful and proud and and, and great things. And then just a few verses later, Daniel writes about how this little horn will attack and oppose and hate the people of God. He writes in verse 21 saying, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now, that sounds serious. That sounds like a big deal. It is. There is this war and this little horn. He is actually prevailing and winning over the people of God. Notice the next word. Next, very next word in this text is the word until. It's a short-lived victory. Okay, it's always a short-lived victory for Satan. It's not really victory. It's not really success. He says that, that this little hornet prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So once again, it is such a short-lived Victory for this little horn who wages war, who speaks arrogantly because the ancient of days shows up and he gives the kingdom to his people. So what have we seen? You say, well, not much. We haven't even been in Revelation 13. That's fair. But what have we seen thus far in First John 2? We're reminded that Antichrist is coming. And in fact, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we were reminded that the man of lawlessness, he is the one who opposes. 
He opposes God. He opposes Christ. He opposes His people. He proclaims Himself to be God. He demands that others worship Him. And yet, He is quickly destroyed. In Daniel 7, we are reminded that this little arrogant horn, it will wage war against God's people. It will have success in the immediate, but it will be short-lived because the Ancient of Days will come to rule in power and glory. And now... After that long introduction, we're ready for Revelation 13. Look at the first four verses. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems or crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Stop there for a moment. That's a painful text to read. That is painful, especially those closing words as you hear this adoration and praise being given to this beast who who arises. and, and, And yet, I would remind you, Don't forget how we started. Don't forget where this is leading. This is all part of a call for faith. A call for God's people to endure. This is a good thing. Okay, this is, and I'll prove that to you before you leave. So, in these first four verses, we see three things. We see the beast's description. We see his deception that he inflicts on the whole world and we see the devotion that is giving to him. So description, deception, and devotion. Now we're not going to belabor these points. We're not going to camp here for a really, really long time. We're going to move through them quickly, but please note this on your outline. This is important. First, number one, the beast's description. The beast and his empire arises out of the sea, arises out of chaos and evil. He possesses ferocious, overwhelming, destructive power, and he wields global authority and dominance. All right? So this beast, he arises from the sea. The sea was often thought and pictured to be the domain of Satan, a symbol of chaos and, and, and evil. In fact, even sometimes in Scripture, the sea is referred to as the abyss. And here this beast is seen arising out of the sea, arising out of the abyss. And this beast here, he has ten horns, seven heads, and ten crowns. And along with these horns and heads and crowns, the text tells us that there are blasphemous names that are, that are written all over his, his heads. Now, do you remember Back in chapter 12, when we saw the description of the red dragon. In chapter 12, the red dragon, we saw a very similar description to this. The dragon had seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Here in chapter 13, there is this emphasis on 
ten horns and ten crowns. You say, who cares? Well, the point is, is that this beast here, he has strength and might and, and seemingly royal power and authority. That his horns, which are a symbol of strength and might, they have crowns on them. They are ruling and they are powerful and they are dominant. And yet, yet remember what is written on the heads, these blasphemous names at its core. This beast is a blasphemer. He he hates God. He is opposed to God. And so, as John continues to describe the beast that he sees, notice that the beast is like a leopard. That is, a leopard stalks its prey. A leopard is fast. It has speed to capture and to kill. The beast has feet or paws like a bear's Pause. Now, I have never wrestled a bear. I, I hope to never wrestle a bear. But, but b- bears are known for being profoundly strong and ferocious with tearing capabilities with their, with their paws. And this beast's mouth, he has the mouth of a lion. He has jaws to swallow and to tear and to eat. The point that John is making is this beast has force, strength, speed, and savagery. And this beast, he wields great authority. Satan, in verse 2, as as John describes it, Satan gives him his throne. Satan gives his throne to this beast. He invests in him his authority. This is Satan's puppet. This is Satan's king. This is Satan's false Christ to deceive and to rule the world. Next, we also see the beast's Deception. Look again at verse 3. We read this. John writes, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Please note this on your outline. Uh, the beast's deception, the beast is clearly a counterfeit Christ. Okay, And, and again, we're going to see this this morning. We're going to see this even more next week as, 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 as well. Everything about this beast and then about the false prophet that's going to come next week, it's a counterfeit Christ. It's meant to try to imitate and to mimic and to, and to show you something attractive so that you will be drawn away from Christ. But note this on your outline. The beast is clearly a counterfeit Christ. He receives a throne from his father. He miraculously recovers or resurrects from some mortal wound or death experience. And this is going to become maybe even more relevant next week as John continues to develop the vision that he sees. But now remember this. Christ. Christ. The true king. The true savior. The true Messiah. He is rightfully honored by his father. Remember what the father declared at the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't be deceived by this counterfeit. Christ, he is rightfully elevated, seated at the right hand of the father in glory. He truly conquered death by virtue of his resurrection on the third day. But this beast... He's an imposter. He's an imposter at every level. Everything about him is a bad, horrible imitation of Jesus. And sadly, the world buys it. The wor- Look again at verse 4. It says, and this is so painful to read, and they worshipped the dragon. 
for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Please note it on your outline, the beast devotion. The unbelieving world lines up to worship Satan, to worship his puppet, to boast in his nature and power. The beast, you'll notice, he gives credit to his father, if you will. He gives credit to Satan. Satan is worshipped for the power that he has given to the beast. The beast is worshipped because he is the representation of power and authority and dominance on earth. And even in the way that the beast is worshipped, it's a mockery of God. It's a mockery of God when they say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? That sounds a lot like what the children of Israel said and sang when they came out of Egypt, when God had delivered them. In Exodus 15, verse 11, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And so as we hear this foolish boast in the beast, as we, as we hear that, that, that saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? I know someone. I know someone who is vastly glorious compared to the beast. Someone who is vastly superior in every way, who truly has authority and sovereignty. I know someone, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the story does not end well for the beast. The story does not end well for the dragon. In Revelation 20, verse 10, we read this, And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Notice this, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? There's a very obvious answer to that question. The Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is able, he is worthy to destroy the works of the devil. He is worthy to make all things new. But for this morning, next, we need to notice the beast's blasphemy and brutality. In verses 5 to 8. In verses 5 to 8, John writes this. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Now stop there. I know the verse continues, but stop there for just a moment. This sounds bad. And, and it is. This beast 
says horrible things. He blasphemes God. He elevates himself. He claims greatness and glory for himself, but it does not stop there. He does not only blaspheme God, but he speaks against heaven. He mocks the rule and the domain of God and the glory of God, but it doesn't even just stop there. He not only blasphemes God and he blasphemes heaven, but here the text says he also blasphemes those in heaven. He mocks Holy angels, he rails against believers who have trusted in Christ and who are even at this moment in the very presence of God. Why does he do this? Why does he talk this way? Why does he say these terrible things? Remember this beast, he is loyal to Satan. He is energized by Satan. He is hostile to everything that God loves. He is desperate to mock anything that is holy and devoted to the true Lord. He opposes, he desires to attack anyone who is loyal to Christ. And remember this, his boastful words, they are meant to inspire people to follow him. They are meant to call people to see his arrogance and his supposed strength and to rally people to his allegiance. And yet, and this is so important to remember, this is a truth that this text will not let us forget. Please note it on your outline. Even while this beast blasphemes, mocks, curses, and wages war on God's people, God rules. God absolutely rules. He allows for this beast to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. He doesn't get 43 months. He doesn't get 44 months. He gets 42 months. Verse 5, we are told this beast is given a mouth. Verse 5, again, this beast is allowed to exercise authority. Verse 7, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints. The beast and the dragon who uses him, they are on a sovereign leash. They are. They are on a sovereign leash. The hymn writer said it well. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. With that in mind, we come to our final verses for this morning. Verses 7 through 10. We're going to start in the middle of verse 7 and then read all the way through verse 10. John writes, And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here in these final verses we see the Lamb's book and we see the saints' victory. And these two things are not unrelated. They are related to one another. Please note this on your outline. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news. The Lamb's book of life reminds us 
that God knows those who belong to him. God will not fail. God will not fail in bringing his chosen, his beloved people home to glory. I mean, here in this text, we are reminded that before the foundation of the world, before time began, before sin ever entered into the picture, God determined to reveal and to show the riches of His grace. God was determined to show the riches of His mercy and His kindness by sending His Son to die, by sending His Son to redeem a people for Himself to the praise of His glory. And the people that God has chosen to save for His glory, they will not worship the beast. They will see through the lies. They will see through the deception. And they will not believe this liar. They will not believe this deceiver. This one who defies and tries to oppose Christ. Do you remember what we talked about last week? or what, what, what Pastor Stephen talked about last week? How the people of God conquer and overcome? In chapter 12, verse 11, we read this. And they, God's people, have conquered Him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Brothers and sisters, Here is a call for faith and endurance. Here is a call for faith and endurance and confidence in Christ. And listen, it is found in the sovereign love and grace of God. This is a call for faith and endurance and steadfastness to know that if you are a child of God, then you are loved, eternally loved and secure in Him. The Lamb has His book. The Lamb knows those who belong to Him and they cannot be lost even when the beast is doing His worst. They overcome by the blood of Christ and by their testimony in him and yet even in saying that we still have to reckon with verses 9 and 10 which are a little strange which are a little perplexing which admittedly almost seem out of place as you read verses 9 and 10 you probably have questions i have questions why does verse 9 begin by talking about having ears to hear Doesn't everyone have ears to hear? I mean, if you're here this morning listening to me, you have ears to hear, right? That's a question. Why does verse 10 actually sound so discouraging? (laughs) I mean, if this is supposed to be a call for faith and endurance, why does verse 10 sound so discouraging? If it's supposed to be a passage to inspire faith and endurance, why is verse 10 largely a quotation and summary from Jeremiah 15.2. Jeremiah 15.2. It's a, that, that's a verse where it talks about God's decision to send rebellious Israel off into exile. What is this about? Why, why do we read this here? Please note this on your outline. This is so good. The saints' victory and enduring courage it is rooted in god himself this is the point and i'll I'll prove it to you in just a moment this is the point 
the saints' victory, enduring, it is rooted in God himself, in knowing, in believing, in trusting that God knows best. That God knows best for every single one of us. For, for his people, God knows what is best, even if he ordains and allows really hard things like persecution, like captivity, even death and martyrdom, you are never away from the sovereign love and care of God, even in the midst of really hard things like what is described in this chapter. And brothers and sisters, the point is the reason why this this passage begins as it does by talking about having ears to hear is because not everyone does have ears to hear. Not everyone has ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to love the truth. But the point is, the people of God do. Because we've been changed. Because God has made us alive in Christ and He's given us His Spirit and He's given us minds to see and to know the truth. We are called in this passage to trust God in His timing and in His sovereignty. We are called to believe that He knows best even if His best involves for us persecution and difficulty and pain and captivity or even death in this life. And this is why, this is why we read and we will continue to read and we will never apologize for it. We continue to read such paradoxical statements throughout the book of Revelation. Paradoxical statements that, that, that continually talk about how God's people triumph, how we conquer and we overcome the beast and the dragon. And at the same time, we are also told that we will face persecution and, and even possibly death for our faith in Christ. And so you say, which is it? Do we overcome or do we face persecution and possibly even death? Yes. The answer is always yes at Harbor Shores Church. Yes. That's the answer. Let me, let me prove it to you. Let me put two verses side by side for just a moment that make this point. The first one, we see it here, is Revelation 13, 7, where we read this. It, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Wow, that sounds like the beast wins. That sounds like the beast makes war and he conquers the saints and he's the winner. Really? Is he? Is he, is he ultimately the winner? Does he conquer? Just a little bit later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 15, verse 2, we see this. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. These same saints who are martyrs in chapter 13, who are killed by the beast, they have actually conquered the beast. They have conquered the beast. Their faith and even their, their physical death, listen, it has not led them to shame. It has not led them to disgrace. It has actually worked in them to bring about life and victory and joy in Christ. Think of it like this, okay? Think of it like this. Brothers and sisters, Joseph, 
in, in, in the book of Genesis, Joseph, he was not victorious because he eventually became ruler in Egypt and Pharaoh trusted him with everything in the kingdom. No, Joseph was victorious because he was faithful to God, because he honored the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are not victorious simply because they survived the fiery furnace and when they came out, they didn't smell like smoke. No, they were victorious because they refused to bow to the idol. They refused to worship anything other than the one true God and they held fast to their faith in Yahweh. Daniel was not victorious because the lions didn't eat him for lunch that day. He was victorious because he was determined to pray to God and to hope in God and to entrust himself to God above everything. This is how we win. This is how the people of God always win. We conquer the beast by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony, by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John writes elsewhere in 1 John 5, 4, saying that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in Christ. Our confidence in Him. Our resolute belief that He knows what is best for us. That He will do what is right for us. That He is victorious and we live in Him. Brothers and sisters, that is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. No matter how or when Satan does his worst, God reigns. God reigns. The Ancient of Days comes and He overcomes and we live in Him. Now, there is much more to be said. We've only got about halfway through this chapter, but the rest will wait till next week. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank You for what you have revealed, for what you have shown to us. God, thank you that Christ rules and reigns. That we have a Savior who is not dead, who is not defeated, who is not wallowing in shame. But we have a Savior who is seated at your right hand, who truly rules and reigns over all. And God, even Satan does his worst, he will not succeed for your people will live with you and in you. God, we pray that our faith would not fail. We pray for endurance, for perseverance in these days. We pray for even in those times when very hard and challenging things come to us, things that, that, that we've even talked a little bit about this morning, persecution and, and um, aggression. Lord, help us to be faithful in the face of these things. Help us to be faithful to live for your honor and glory because, again, As we've already sung, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust, worthy of our worship. Lord, grow us in our faith. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.